We get to continue today with 1 Corinthians, and we've been working our way through this letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote, and we're in chapter 6 today. The reason why I really love this letter, and I've been so excited in it, to study it and to be in it with you, is because of what Paul's doing with the gospel. We all say we're a gospel-centric church, we believe the gospel, we live in the gospel, we love Jesus, but sometimes it's easy for us to say that and not understand what it means for how we're going to live, what we're going to do. And and there's a lot of concern sometimes when you just say, man, we just are about Jesus, that what are you actually doing with your life? How are you living it out? And Paul, to this church that didn't get it, goes through these problems that they had, and it's super helpful because you know what? Sometimes I don't get it. We don't get what's going on in terms of the gospel in our lives. I think we stumble in many ways, but particularly in ways because we don't see the depth of what the gospel is. We often want to treat the good news of Jesus kind of like good advice. Like, oh man, Jesus was the wisest teacher ever, and he was. So we'll take his words and we'll use it to build a better, stronger, successful, fulfilled life. And then we use Jesus like every other teacher who's ever walked the face of the earth. We have something different. We have a savior. He surrendered all. And, and, and so Paul really will have none of this use Jesus to be better. Instead, what he does is he gives us more. He gives us something deeper. And in our passage today, he drives home for us both the depth of what's been done for us. Oh man, it goes past our expectations and deeper. And so then how does that work itself out as we think about our life? So, so, so today, really, what we're, we're seeing is our connection to Jesus and why we do what we do as Christians. And he'll show us an idea, and then, and then he'll show us the example. And we want to hear both of them. I've called this body imaging, and I know, I know. Once your body image, you think, man, you know, you're talking about I have too much adipose tissue, or I'm too short, or I don't like what I look like. We're not talking about that. We're talking about us as a body. How are we showing what the truth is? What does that look like for you and me? Because we're actually imaging things all the time. We're revealing things. And Paul wants us to reveal things in a certain way. The most amazing thing, you guys, oh, I hope you see it today, is that when I was first a dad and I first had kids and they were two years old or three years old, I did stuff like this. Don't touch the stove. Why, Dad? They could even say it in their little voices. The answer was, because I said so. You just don't do it. I knew it was hurtful for them. I knew what the problem was, but I wasn't going to talk to them about conductive electrical thermoplastics and gas fires. No way. And yet, as they get older, now I can talk to them about why. What happens when you stick a knife into a light socket? You know, there's electrical conductivity, and there's things going, it's really not helpful for you. We get to see that today, and it's a marvelous thing for you and I and particularly in the area of sexual immorality, because there's a lot of confusion. So let's walk through it. It, it, I think it's really helpful, but you have to get the first thing first, which is the basic and really pokey in some ways for some of us because of how we've been raised, that we have real freedom. Real freedom. That's the gospel. Let's go. We'll pick it up in verse 12, chapter 6. This is where he is. He says, all things are lawful for me, Paul writes, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated 
by anything. Okay, so as we see, this starts right in the middle of a passage. We're picking up from where we left off last week, but it's really a continuation. And right away, people start arguing about this verse. Because if you notice in the text here, it's from the ESV is where we picked this text, there's little quotes around parts of it. Do you see that? It says, all things are lawful for me. So people say, well, is Paul really saying something from himself, or is he quoting something that was just sort of lying around in Corinth, and he's really not for it? So if you have the ESV, they've decided to say, they, we think this was a phrase floating around Corinth, all things are lawful for me. And if you have other translations of your Bible, for example, if you have the New King James, and you look in the New King James, you'll see there's no quotes, and there's no quotes in the Greek. We're just trying to figure out, is this, is this something Paul would say? And, and here's the thing you need to know about that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Paul's not saying he doesn't agree. Paul is for this saying. He's not saying it's not true. He's saying it is true. Look, you've heard. All things are lawful for me. Now, I'm going to have some more stuff to say, but that's true. I'll say it again. All things are lawful for me. Yep, that's true. Okay, wait a minute. How can this be? This is... This is This is one of the most radical statements you'll hear in our law-saturated culture. He's not specifically pointing at the Mosaic law. He's pointing at law. He's saying, the Christian isn't under law. Yep, that's true. What? Are we antinomian? Meaning we, 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 we don't think the law has any value? We're not. But we gotta be with Paul when he says this. All things are lawful for me. Back up with me, because when you hear this, you got to get the flow. If you don't flow into this, you won't understand what he's saying. So flow back. Go back. If you have your Bibles, check back. But I'll put it on the on the screens, too. He goes back and go back up to where we finished last time. In verse 9, he said this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Very clear, right? All these lawbreakers, these are all things against the law. All these people that are sinning, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. I get it. They're not going in. Amen, I think. Heaven is for good people. But then he says this, and such were some of you. I think he has the sum in there just because he didn't list every sin. And he says, such were all of you. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You realize, and we looked at last week briefly, this is the last statement. Now he's going to step into what he's going to talk about now. But so he said something about you and me who have put our trust in Jesus. We were washed clean. We were set apart. We were sanctified. We were declared righteous, justified. It's done, he says. That's the tense of what he's talking about. You might be, if you continue on, you might do this, you might go ahead. No, 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 no. This has been done to you, not by you. Pretty amazing. In the name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, totally passive on our part, 
and finished. And here's the thing. Then he goes right into what we're talking about right now. All things are lawful to me. There's two options of how we take this, right? Because, because really one option is, is that you really are clean. You really are washed. You really are sanctified. You really are justified. This has been done to you. Wow. And you still are. You're that way in Christ forever. Or there's option number two, which would be, yeah, this happened to you, but, but you know what? You gotta keep keeping the law. You gotta keep following the rules or else you'll lose it. You won't be sanctified anymore. You won't be righteous anymore. And you certainly won't be clean anymore. Many of us want to pick door two. And here comes Paul. And he says, you know what? It's got to be door one. Why? Because what's the purpose of the law? I mean, in, in some degree, for our thinking, not necessarily biblically, I think the purpose of the law is clear, and it's we stand on it. It's to push you to Jesus, to show you your sin, to tutor you to Christ. But but for many of us, we also think that it's something along the lines of, if you keep the law, you stay clean. If you keep the law, then, you, then you're set apart. You're not common like those lawbreakers over there who maybe won't even get into heaven. If you keep the law, then you sort of, by definition, you're righteous. That's kind of the definition of righteousness in our minds, that we keep the law. And we appeal to even Jesus, who said things like, man, if you keep the law, you're doing well. We kind of push aside, if we can, the parts of the Bible that says no one actually keeps the law. So, so here, through Jesus Christ, he says you are by faith alone, by trusting Jesus alone. You are these things. It was done to you by Jesus, not even by you. And so, therefore, the law has nothing more to say to you. I'm not talking about civil righteousness, like, oh, well, then now I can speed. Like, you'll get pulled over for a ticket and you'll have to pay it. I'm not talking about robbing a bank because they'll go take you to jail because you robbed a bank. That's civil stuff. That's like breaking the rules of society. And, and, and there's things like that. We're talking about your standing before God forever. Is it true that you stand before God, righteous, sanctified, washed, not based on law anymore? And the answer is yes. This is a radical huge thing because we have such a terrible time separating it out, right? Because, because I think that the law is needed. I think in some degree because it's scary. If I say, oh man, I have been washed by Jesus. I have been cleansed forever. I have been sanctified forever. I have been righteous, made righteous by Christ, given his righteousness forever. It's a little scary to say. It's fearful. Because really the only ground I have then is trusting Jesus. I don't have any ground in things that I put my faith in all the time what I do. There's a comfort, you know, in constraining of the law and how it feeds our sense of personal rightness. I have done things, so I know I'm on safer ground. I've been a pastor for 10 years, 20, however long, and I've done these things, and I, I did that, and, and, and there I have, I've kept the law, something I can give to God and say, look, I'm worthy, you know, and he says, well, wait, 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 the law actually has nothing to do with you.
many years ago now. I won't say it was to me. A man came to a pastor, a couple, and, and they were struggling in their marriage, and they, they, uh, the man wasn't loving his wife. And so what, what he did outside, he came to the pastor and said to the pastor, you know what, I, I, I'm going to love my wife. I want you to, to make me love my wife. And so I'm, I want to plan and I want to put together. I want to, you'll be my accountability guy, pastor, he said to him. And, and he said, what you'll do is, is I'm going to have an operation, love my wife, and I'm going to make every day a thing I'm going to do. And one day it'll be, and we, he found some devotional of 12 or 30 days to loving your wife. And so he, you know, this day it was give flowers and this day it was 20 minutes of couch time and this day it was movies. And every day he would check off and come, Hey, I did those things. And his wife and he came back the following month. And she was more steamed than ever before. She was angry. Why is my husband treating me as a project? He comes and he does these things for me. He checks a box and then he leaves and does whatever he wants. He did it, right? He loved me. That's not love. I want him. I want him to be for me. I want him to have a heart for me. What's going on? And and this isn't love, this pastor-guided things to check off. That kind of gets to what Paul's saying, right? The depth of what's happened to you is a heart-level change if you're a Christian. It's a change that says that you and I, we have no hope in ourselves. We are trusting in the outside washing and the outside holiness and the outside righteousness of Jesus applied to me. If that's the case, Paul says, the law has nothing else to say to you. It's a whole different paradigm that's not law. There's this new way. He says the law is done. All things are lawful for me. Yeah, says Paul. But not everything's helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be ruled by any of them. So you have this truth, and you got to get it, and this is why I've spent so much time here, that atonement proclaims the forgiveness of sin. All of it. Forever. There's not a new code to see if you can be forgiven based on your trying. It's not glorifying to God to think that you just keep the law when the law has been fulfilled in Christ. What are you doing? So now we think through this, right? And and we accept from Paul, from the Bible, that all things are lawful to me. Paul's not negating it. And he says, but, 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 there's a but. Why do I think that everything's helpful? And you see that shift is? The shift is now that you get the gospel. I can show you how these things work. Because if you're going to say, hey, not everything's helpful to me, the response that I'm going to have is, well, I I don't get it. Why isn't it helpful to me? And if the answer is, well, because God says so. You're right back to, well, but, but, but. And let me say exactly and particularly in the area of sexual immorality. Because sexuality is fun. There's pleasure in it. So you can go right back to saying, God wants me not to have pleasure. Is God keeping me from good things? And you're going down the road that we hear very, you've heard it before in Genesis chapter 3. God wants to keep you from good things? Who is this God? And pretty soon you're listening to the deceiver and the accuser and thinking that God's not totally for you when he says to you, these things are not helpful for you. So now, not like the two-year-old, but like the child who now can understand, you can see how, how 
this can work. And yeah, not all things are helpful for me, right? Anything. Like, if I was going to say to you, man, what I'm going to do, I'm going to free climb El Capitan. Yeah, you laugh because you look at me. You know that it's not going to be good for me. That is not going to be helpful for me. I'm going to end up dead. Not good. So that, that, why would you do that? That's not helpful for you. I'll tell you what. There's a beautiful why to this that pervades our thinking. We have a why, not just because I said so. The example's here around sexual sin. And, and, and I'll tell you what, it's amazing. So it's about real union. And I'll tell you why this is so amazing to me and why, why I love it so much is that I, I counsel people all the time and many, many young people, many, many things in our society because it's pervasive. Wrong images, things you see all the time, it's pervasive. And people don't understand why. And in the absence of understanding why, there's always this niggle of, am I just trying to fulfill some law? The answer is, no, you're not. There's reasons why we do what we do. So, so look for look at this with me, verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, right away, again, there's this quote thing going on again. And so people argue over this one, and they say, well, what does Paul mean? Is, is Paul quoting a quotation that was in Corinth? And then is it this just this first part, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food? Or is it the next part, too, and God will destroy both one and the other, and it's all one quote? And again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the meaning at all, whether Paul is appropriating something they said and saying, yeah, it's true, because he says it is true. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach's meant for food. So God's going to destroy them both. Is this idea that it's passing? You can eat what you want, because you know what? Your stomach and the food you're eating are both getting done. Who cares? Have at it. Eat away. The body's getting destroyed. The body's perishing. Who cares? And the Greeks thought this way. The culture thought this way. And, and, and sometimes we do, too. It's this idea of just, hey, appetites are natural. When I'm hungry, I eat. So, so, so sexuality. My body is just, it's my body. When it's hungry, you feed it. When there's desire, you feed it. It's just passing away. This is Greek philosophy saying you separate the body and the spirit. The spirit is good. The body's unimportant. You satiate it like hunger. And when you make this into a law, then this is where it becomes super confusing because then you kind of say, well, my body has these desires and they're normal desires. So God makes this law and it sounds really arbitrary to say don't do it, but, but, but it, but I'm hungry. Is God just not feeding me? We don't understand. So Paul says, hey, you're not under law, Christian. Let me show you how this plays out. I just want to say, too, if you're walking through the flow with me, that as you walk through this passage and you see the wonder of what's been said, that we were sinners and now we're washed, that, that some people would say, hey, you guys, now that we're washed, we don't do these things anymore. My, my question for those folks is, why in the world is he telling us not to then? <laughs> Because now that you've been washed, you can still go down these lines. It doesn't change your washedness. It doesn't change your righteousness. It doesn't change your holiness. But I'll tell you what, it's not helpful for you. The question you should have is why? So 
So this really important first idea of why is that your body's not just some appendage that doesn't matter. It's not just a bag of desires. It's true that food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food and they both go away. Paul agrees. He says, eat what you want. But then he says, now let's talk about sexuality. The body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So the body's not just an appetite center. It's actually, first, eternal. Think about this with me. Because this is where he appeals. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You realize what he's saying, right? He's saying that our bodies die, but then the resurrection comes. What is that? It's a bodily resurrection. When you get resurrected, it's not your spirit alone. It's your spirit and your body in one union. You're you're together. You're still going to be a body. Your body's not just perishing. Why is this important? Because this is what it means. It means what you do with your body reflects your understanding of what's been done to you. Do you understand what's been done to you? That's his argument, right? He says this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see what he's saying? This is radical stuff. What's true of you now that you have been washed and you have been sanctified and you have been justified, that there's a union of you and Jesus. Now, it's not you outside keeping the laws, trying desperately to come into the family. You are the family. You're part of the family. And it's more than family. It's this union with Christ, this union of which Paul says, I don't even understand it. It's a mystery. But it's done by God, by faith. So what's the problem? Well, there's this essential oneness, right? That you know by faith in Christ that you have been joined to Jesus. And when you take that to a prostitute, when you say the body is separate, that it's just about appetite and it's, it's not sin, you're actually denying that oneness. Now, Dax, that sounds kind of heady. No, it's not that heady. You're imaging something. You're imaging reality. Right? If you're in union with Jesus, if you're imaging that in different parts of the body, and why you wouldn't take it to a prostitute is because why? What is that, what is that relationship? It's two things. First, it's temporary by nature. It's not reflecting the eternal the eternal connection, always union you have with Jesus. It's transactional. It's saying, okay, this is the peace, we're together, and then we're not together anymore. And then second, it's about fulfilling you. Oh yeah, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He was all about self-fulfillment. No, he died and laid his life down for you. He looked at you and said, I'm for you always. Man, I bore pain and suffering so that you can be saved. 
the beauty of our unions that we have reflect those two eternal truths from Jesus. And in our bodies, we want to show that. Jesus is united to us forever, and he died for us. This is the truth of our union. So sexual immorality, it's about this temporary connection, right? And it's going to be broken. Of course it is. And it's about self-fulfillment, not other fulfillment. And so when you, when you go and you image that oneness sexually, and you, you image that it's temporary by entering into these things, you image that it's about you fulfilling you. What you're doing is you're shredding that image of forever union and the sacrificial love of Christ for you. It's still there. You can't break it, right? If you were washed and you were cleansed and you were sanctified, these things are true of you. It's there. That's the reality. You're just acting like it's not a reality. You're trying to show, no, I, this is not really true. It's still true. But this is in no way helpful for you. Right? Sexual immorality should make your hair curl. And not in a good way. Because you don't want to train yourself with lies. When you know the truth. What's the truth about Jesus? I'm in a forever union with him. It is self-sacrificial. This is so cool. Is our union with Jesus temporary appetite fulfillment? No way. Would I use Jesus like I use a prostitute? Oh, the horror. No, no, no. We are in real union. That's that's the first thing. There's a little more. It's not just real union, it's real identity. Have an identity. You've been purchased by God. Let's keep going. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So there's the command, right? Oh, boy, there's a, a command. Flee it, he says. Yes. But you do see, right? You see, as we've walked through it now, it's not a law. It's not now the law of Christ, like somehow you don't need to understand. No. It's not a, if you do this, if you flee immorality, if you don't do it, now you're not washed or you're not sanctified or you're not righteous. No, because that's not the basis for it at all. It's about what you're imaging. Paul is showing them why this way is not the way or the truth or the life. Look, he says. Oh, I didn't finish that. Look, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See what he's saying? He's saying run from sexual morality. Flee it. Flee from pornea. That's the word, right? Why? Because it's a sin against your own body. Super important. Because our society has a different reason. Our society that doesn't know Christ, that has no idea about the reality we're talking about of our union with Jesus, they say the problem is the person you're looking at. It's called objectifying. 
They say that when you look at stuff on the internet or when you do stuff, it's about you're hurting the person you're looking at. And Paul says, no, you're hurting yourself. So it's not about objectifying something. You can't hurt a picture on the wall. It's not going to be hurt when you do things that are wrong with it. The problem is you. You're hurting yourself. Why? Because you're de-unionizing. You see what you're doing? You're saying that, that what, what the, this is for, this sexuality that the Lord has given us that's so beautiful and wonderful and life-giving and awesome that it's really about temporary self-fulfillment. And I will train myself that that's what it's about. That's the problem. That's the de-unionizing because actually it's part of this union that you have forever with God. It's a reflection of the intimacy that you have with God in this mystery union forever that there, therefore we image that in the actual relationships that we do. We image the gospel, the union we have with Jesus. It's incredible what we actually have. So saying desires are meaningless or physical or denying union with Christ, we're training self-fulfillment, we're acting out sort of this anti-gospel that our union is breakable, that, that it's for self-fulfillment, that it's not deeper. And, and honestly, we image, we image the gospel all over. This is your life. <laughs> we do it in marriage, right? The actual marriage that we have is this saying that, that what we're trying to do is image this mystery union forever union we have with Jesus. It's not forever for us because we only live a certain number of years. But we say it's not breakable because our union with Jesus is not breakable. And you know what? It's about fulfilling the other person, not about fulfilling me. We get to see a little bit more next week about that. What are you imaging? I'm imaging Jesus and the church. You come in every other week. We come in and we do this thing called taking communion. And we all together, as a body, we receive the body and blood of Jesus. We take it in. What are we imaging? My only hope is the blood of Jesus shed for me, the body of Jesus given for me. And we act it out together. Baptism, maybe you only did it once in your life, but you get to see it and see other people do it, where they they go down and they get killed in the waters of chaos. They're dead and they come out new life in Jesus, saying, all I had is dead and all I have is Christ. What is that? That's an image. You're imaging something. Even in our other relationships, I'm a dad. I'm imaging my father, my father in heaven. I'm not like him. He's awesome and perfect. I'm imperfect. And, but, but then the gospel has me image it a certain way, right? So I think about, as a father, do you know what I'm about? I'm about forgiving the unforgivable. Like my kid, when they go and they go sideways, I'm not going to try and tell them the law will save them. I'm going to tell them their father forgives them. And even if they're Gomer and they've gone back to the mud for the thousandth time, you know what? Take them back. Why? Because I've got a father in heaven. And I image his amazing forgiveness. That's imaging. Because of the gospel, I understand this truth. And so I start to do things, you see, that that reflect the understanding that I have. And here, this understanding now you have of what sexual stuff is about. Why marriage is the framework for it. It's because of the depth of what we're doing. We're imaging the wonder of the gospel. Okay. This is glorifying God, by the way, and he ends with that, right? So you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're, we're worshiping. We're a temple. Worship happens in the temple. We didn't make ourselves a temple. 
We don't like, oh, I'm building a temple for God by all the good things that I do. No, you have been made a temple by the work of Christ so that you can show the reality that you now know. It's by the Holy Spirit, but we're on display as trusting Jesus for this incredible act of God that he has given you and me life, the only life there is, which is life in Jesus Christ. That's a gift from God. We are precious purchased by him. Okay, so what's going on here? It's not, okay, yeah, God bought you for a lot of money, so start paying him back. That's not it at all. You can't pay him back. It's image the reality that you've been purchased by God. This is glorifying. With the word glory there, it's not, it doesn't mean bring God a bunch of stuff and give it to him. The glory there is praise. So you don't have a bunch of stuff. I'm going to give God some of my glory. Let me parcel it out to God a little bit at a time. This is just saying, hey, in everything that you do, praise God. We among all people have the most to praise God because, look, we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. To the praise of his glory. So I praise him because I see the wonder of what it means to be in union with Christ. I praise him because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving him something by being Jesus. I'm praising him by seeing the truth, by making the connection by imaging what the Bible says is true of you. And, and so at the end of the day, the issue is not sexuality. The issue is what we think sexuality is and who we are. Our, our physical union in a marriage is a reflection of the forever union we have with Christ. It's a wonder that Jesus laid down his life for us, not for himself. If you image this wrongly, if you're going the other way, it's a form of hiding. It's a form of fakery. Of saying either this has no meaning, this union, or that it might not be forever. And we cover up and we hide and we have this because we, our lack of assurance that we're totally loved and totally taken care of forever. We say to ourselves, God doesn't fulfill us. We've got to seek our own fulfillment. Okay, you get the gist, but I just, for today... It's so important that you know, this is not a new law. It may be for you the start of another way. And I referenced John already, who said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the way of the cross. We don't use Jesus as a new law. We see now that we are sons and daughters. We are in the family, and God begins to show us the reasons why the gospel changes our lives. And our lives are changed because we have an understanding to image, a reality to show. And so we show it. And so the word today, flee sexual immorality. Because Jesus Christ is with you forever. I have a final word. I have to say one more word, and then we're done. This is the final word. Many of you are in this. We are in a society that is no less wrong than Corinth. It is available everywhere. Men and women alike fall into sexual immorality and lust. It may be you today. And you hear from here saying, oh, look, I'm shredding my union with Christ. Something's happening wrong. Then I hope you hear this is not a law. This is the greatest hope you could have. Because if it were a law and you were out doing that, the question would be, well, can God really forgive me now because I've broken the law again? And instead, what you hear is that, you know what? It hasn't been helpful for you. That is so different. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It doesn't matter. All that matters is, hey, you've been hurting yourself. Why don't we stop? 
Why don't you come get help? It's not a judgment issue. It's not a, oh, you've lost your salvation issue. It's not a, oh, man, unless you really repent with tears and ashes and give me a little penance. It's none of that, is it? It's come realize your union. Come see the wonder of what the gospel's done. And then let's start showing it in our lives, and we'll help each other. We'll fall down a lot. Because the answer is not, oh, you'll never fall. The answer is, it's not helpful for you that you're doing these things. You're imaging the wrong stuff. So there's hope for you always because you are already clean. You are already holy. You are already righteous. Sin, it's not not because sin doesn't matter, but because Jesus Christ has forgiven all your sin forever. If you're in him, well, how do I get in him? You trust him. That's the gospel. doesn't matter what happened yesterday. But if you see it's not helpful, a man, we stand ready. I stand ready. The elders stand ready to help you any through this so we can image together Christ and his union with us. Come be a part of that. Let's pray.